0: just think about Luke 1 and 2. It's full of song. And Zechariah's song, the Angel's song, Mary's song.
1: Can't shut them up. Sounds like a musical, doesn't it? Welcome to Cooper and Carey Have Words. I'm James Carey. Here in the UK, over there in the USA, is Barry Cooper. How are you, Barry?
2: Lovely to be here, James. Thank you so much. Now, we won't waggle on the tea. We've got a very no. special guest with
1: us. We do, yes. And in this, I shall tell you what we're talking about first. In this episode, we're talking about music what it is, how it relates to God and creation and things like that, but also a composer who is a vicar's son, editor of the English hymnal, a man who set Herbert poems to music, a composer of operas about Job, great, Pilgrim's Progress, eh. Rafe Vaughan Williams. But to talk about this, we have the ideal guest for a podcast, a pastor of churches on both sides of the Atlantic in the UK and the US, teacher at London Seminary tutor in Christian ethics with the Pastors Academy and a podcaster in his own right of the Church Podmatics podcast have i got that right matthew mason welcome to the
0: podcast thank you very much james it's great to be with you yes you have got it right and um, one other thing to add i'm the director of uh, the Crosslands Cultivate program which is uh, aiming to equip Christians to engage theologically with culture so um, right up your alley yeah.
1: Absolutely, you are. And, and why don't you get us going about, because we, we, we love to talk about the arts on this uh, podcast, and we have spoken about music in relation to worship and worship music. I think we spoke to Matt Searles about that, didn't we? But it's worth just, you know, being a bit, um, well, uh, general for a moment about music. Music's kind of magic, isn't it? What, what is
0: it? Why did God make music? What's, what's going on? What is it doing? what is it doing what is it i mean well i think i i want to back up even further than that and go just like we live in a musical world and because actually most of us are surrounded by sort of urban settings we miss that mm. um but as soon as you sort of get away from the sound of engines um and, and things like that uh and and people you realize what a musical world we live in just Uh, The sound of, if you're by the sea, the sound of the waves crashing in. If you're in in a wood, the sound of the wind in the leaves, bird song, animal calls. Mm. And even as I'm talking to you now, you can, if you're listening, you can hear various uh, musical things going on just the way I'm speaking. My voice is going up and down. There's cadence and rhythm. There's percussive sounds and those kinds of sounds as well. Mm.
1: And actually just saying about um, engines, these days, even engines are tuned and so if you're buying high performance cars they really put their backs into how does the engine sound because that's what you're paying your money for um and also the sound of a um a door closing uh these are all these are not coincidences how a bmw door closes that's not an accident They've thought about that. The sound is everything.
0: Absolutely, and, and the way it locks as well to make you think that your lock is really good. It's got a nice deep <laughs> plunk rather than the sort of rather cheap tacky click that my car has. Okay. Um, yes, um, and so I, I just think that already begins to indicate that music is deeply embedded within being a creature and therefore reveals something about God. Um, I I want to say that carefully, but I think it must do. Um, And then so actual human music seems to me like a a beautified and glorified version of what we naturally do as we're moving around, talking to each other and listening to the world around us. Hmm. Um, and And so I think one of the things music does is gesture towards beauty and transcendence, even without us being aware of it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So I think in a way it's a bit like just as uh, food is a basic thing that we need to eat, but also God has given us food. There's food and then there's cuisine, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There, is, there is putting foods together in particular ways that creates sensations and experiences and also fellowship. You know, it's all of these things are, are, are part of the same kind of conversation, aren't they?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, if you listen to little children just pottering around, the number of times you listen to them, and actually they've they've just got a little hum, they're Mm. singing away to themselves. And then as they get older, you know, I've noticed it with ours, uh, they've all sung in choirs, but just experimenting and playing around with adapting the things they're singing or singing harmonies. Um, And then I think this is something I would love to talk about more as we go along. What you just said about the social aspect of eating, I think is, profoundly true of music that actually m- music almost more than anything else is a communal community social thing and hmm. um, that that is actually i mean just the word the very word harmony right it, it speaks speaks about human relationships but is a musical term yeah yeah, yeah. I think
1: Barry's always been keen for us to talk more about music, and actually Barry's a huge music fan as am I. I'm, I'm not as big a fan of Depeche Mode as as Barry is. I feel but, like I've been. But on it's hard to talk about music. But, yeah. it's, but music is hard to talk about without sort of hearing it. But the moment you hear something you really like, you just want other people to hear it, don't you? We live in a world of of headphones and earphones, but actually the. We we just want it like, you know, we're all old enough to remember that you give somebody a mixtape, but Barry, I'm presuming you were heavy user of mixtapes, right?
2: Yeah, funnily enough, I just I'm currently compiling a Spotify playlist for a friend of mine called Adam, who I have been doing playlists for since we were at university. So we started off with cassette tapes, and then we moved on to um, CDs. I think we may even have done mini discs at one point, and so now we're into Spotify playlists. But yes, it is. It's a there is, and we hardly see each other ever. Um, so it's a way that we have of maintaining our friendship. So there is a real sense of. Can I, can I reach out across 4,000 miles and really connect with the heart of my good friend Adam through music? So there is this wonderfully communal uh, aspect of it, as you say.
1: Yeah. And and we mentioned this the other day, I think, in a previous podcast about how a lot of people's only uh, experience of singing is at a football match um, or a rugby match in the case of, you know, singing Swing Low, Sweet Charity or whatever. And there's that feeling of of unity that's binding people together And we think oh it's just like they're worshipping and they're worshipping their idol they're worshipping their god which to some extent is true it's a bit curmudgeonly though isn't it do you think Matthew?
0: They're just being human yeah Mm -hmm. they're being human and actually finding an outlet for something that I think in previous generations and in other cultures would just be an incredibly natural and normal part of life that that actually what a football match does or so I'm led to believe Mm -hmm. is is it gathers people together um, and and you're part of something that is bigger than you, the individual. Um, and it just seems natural to me that that would be accompanied by song. So you know, yeah. you, you go you go back a few decades and you go to a pub in Ireland and there'll be uh, there'll be a, a folk band playing and people just joining in and singing. Uh, you think about Welsh male voice choirs. Um, or, you know, my half of my family, I, I know you can tell from the accent, are Lancastrian. <laughs> um, but so there's something about that, even though I've never lived in that area and and never kind of worked in a cotton mill, but sort of the mill brass band kind of thing does something yeah. to me that I feel connects me with family roots. Mm. Um, or you go to Africa and you do sort of tribal drumming dancing, I mean, dances, that's not a thing anymore, is it? But I mean, again, at one point that would have been a big community event. And so much of it is ordered around music.
1: Hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I I have, I I think it's really unfair to say, oh, they're just worshiping their idol. But I think it does point up some of the oddness of modern life that actually Barry, it's lovely to create playlists for a friend you're 3000 miles away from but one of the interesting things about the past is we wouldn't just have been listening to something pre-recorded, mm, either yeah. together or at different times. But we yes. would have been listening together, or actually singing to and with. Yes. Uh, amateur music making would have been a big, just normal part of the
2: piano in the Victorian home, or the piano at the pub. The, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's no, it's no surprise in some ways. I think that the brass band was a working class thing. I mean, tragically, it's not anymore that all the big bands are full of surgeons and lawyers and and people like that playing in their spare time, but they used to be Mm. just people people come out of the pit and what do they do do to relax? They play together.
1: Is our language a function of our British cynicism, tolerance, resistance to false emotion, humour, and so on, or do those qualities come extrinsically, extrinsically (laughs) um, from the language itself? It's a chicken and egg problem. There's language... And there's speech. Um, There's there's chess, and there's a game of chess.
2: Going back to the 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 football thing, it it is there is the joy of singing together. But I think having been a part of um, uh, you know the terraces for a while myself as a Spurs uh, season ticket holder, at least I was. Uh um, uh, Yeah, quite. Um, There is also a sense of trying to reach out to. Again, h- sorry to bring up the, the worshipping sort of idea, but y- you're also trying to connect with those on the pitch as well. You're trying to yeah. have an effect yeah. on the outcome of the game. And so it, there's a wonderful sense of being able to connect with your heroes. And I suppose with music as well, and I saw this a little bit with What Little Reading I did do on on Vaughan Williams, that for him there was a sense, even, even as a died in the wool um, agnostic. It seems to me in later life you'd know better than me, but uh, he was reaching out for the ineffable in some way. He was trying to um, express something um, transcendent and somehow connect with it. Um, and I guess that's probably even with people who wouldn't consider themselves particularly religious at all. I guess that's a fairly common theme, isn't it, with with musicians, composers?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. I certainly true of Vaughan Williams. Um, and just going a sort of generation later with someone like Michael Tippett, who was a real, just a hardline atheist. Nevertheless, I think the sense of there are two great composers of joy in the 20th century. It seems to me, joy and transcendence. One of whom is Olivier Messiaen, who was a devout Roman Catholic, and one of whom is Michael Tippett, who was an English atheist. Um, mm. But I know that you know, as a as a teenager playing in orchestras my experience of yeah you are you are reaching out to something beyond you something greater than you and something that's not just trapped within you know what charles taylor would call the imminent frame just the 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 tangible stuff around us it yeah i I haven't got words for it (laughs) Mm -hmm. well that in itself is
1: is interesting because i think because we are part of such a word based tradition Mm -hmm. and this is something that is a bit of a running theme on this podcast is if it doesn't have explanatory words then i don't know we're not that we're not we don't have that much use doesn't have
2: much utility yeah yeah Yeah. i
1: mean we've spoken to you know visual artists in the past as well in terms of people being somewhat baffled by art because they don't know what they're supposed to feel Hmm. what am i what am i supposed to do so a classical music symphony is like well well what is that yeah, <laughs> it's true. like um you know how how would you begin to help you know heavily word-based Christians to sort of embrace that um that the, the, <laughs> the, the you know the, the feeling of music and to and to go with it rather than just sort of be suspicious
0: that you're being made to feel something without words I don't know in some ways because it's just not my that's not mm. my issue i mean yes i have i have been part of that sort of heavily mm. word based thing and i don't obviously don't want to downplay the importance and centrality of god's communication of himself in words and propositions that's cl- yeah. clearly clearly true and vital the, the centrality of preaching all of that stuff and yet i i i can't think of a time in my life
1: mm.
0: when i wasn't profoundly moved by music yeah um i can't I I don't know much about visual art. I mean, increasingly I can recognise who the painter is likely to be, where they're likely to come from and when, but I I can't talk intelligently about it. And Mm. I know that it can have a profoundly emotional impact on me and be deeply moving. Like I was in the, um, I was in Tate Britain recently and was in the Mark Rothko room and it's sort of very dark and depressing and and then go out into the Turner exhibition where it's full of light and beauty and just the, the change of mood as much as anything else and i would just say well first of all let's go back to what i was saying at the beginning god has made a musical creation that that the that words are not the only thing in creation uh, bird song mm. is a thing right and and animals communicate without words and and music moves us i think that's true for most people at some level whether it's depeche mode or shostakovich right. or anything in between and i think sometimes we need to just Chill out a little bit. (laughs) Another thing I want to say is, I I think coupled with the sort of cerebral thing, it can often be, for whatever reason, a a fear of or a nervousness about emotions. And I want to say, you know, God has made us as holistic people. We're not just intellects. Uh, Mm -hmm. we, We have bodies and we have feelings. And God has designed us that these things work in a harmonious way. And actually, music, again, is a way of... Well, so think of David and Saul in 1 Samuel 16. That actually Saul, when he's demon-possessed and agitated, the only thing that can actually soothe him is David's harp playing. David does not preach him a sermon, hmm. nor, as far as we can tell, does David sing him a psalm. He just plays the harp and it soothes him. So music can do something. It reaches the parts other, other beers can't reach. Hmm. You know what I mean? And I I don't know why we would be frightened of that, but it feels like sometimes we are.
2: I had this quite recently on a project I was working on. Oh, well, a bit worried about using music here because it could be emotionally manipulative. And I wanted to say, well, words can be emotionally (laughs) manipulative. You know, it's not really, I don't think the, the, the debate is really about whether something can be emotionally manipulative or not. It's more a question of, is this emotion fitting And that's really where, you know, the centre of of gravity ought to be in the conversation. So yes, of course, we could use music in a way that is not appropriate and is emotionally manipulative. You could have, um, you know, for example, you know, I don't know, a shot of of people in great suffering and then play, you know, Katrina and the Waves, we're walking on sunshine over the top of it, and it would be dissonant. And there would be, you know, we get that, we get that. But yes, using Words can be manipulative. Not using music at all is an emotionally manipulative choice. Choice in one sense, so that's not an argument against using music. That's an argument against using music in the service of untruth, which I think yeah. is is a, a validity to talk about or carelessly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I recently went to the. This makes him sound like a boiler, but the installation of the Bishop of Bath and Wells <laughs> um, at Wells Cathedral. And it was, uh, you know, it's wonderful to be in a service in a building. He's the 80th bishop, and uh, it, it was it was a great occasion actually. And during the reading, the reading was was Pentecost for Acts two, and as it was read by multiple voices, which is great because we've recently recorded an episode on the reading of scripture. The organ played underneath, mm. and it's just the like choir a Baptist church. The choir suddenly started <laughs> started speaking um, the voices as if lots of people were were saying different languages, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. so suddenly it felt like you were kind of at Pentecost, and obviously, you know, it was a very artistic interpretation of that, but it was cracking, and it really brought alive this sense of hearing all of these voices uh, and the gospel being proclaimed, and I thought. That's a terrific use of the music of the aesthetic of this occasion. Clearly, the, I think I suspect the bishop himself chose that passage, and I thought, what what a beautiful, wonderful thing we've done there hmm. with with words and music in a way that is edifying to
0: believers. Um, what's not to like? And I on sometime this weekend, probably Saturday evening. It happens Friday evening, Saturday evening, and then Sunday evening because it's um, Advent Sunday coming up i'm going to be with my family in salisbury cathedral for the uh, service of darkness to light Hmm. which is just every year i mean it's it's brilliant it is sort of choral anglicanism at its absolute best and the cathedral starts apart from the hideous kind of green emergency exit light which has to stay on for for sort of health (laughs) and safety reasons the cathedral will be pitch black and they'll light one candle at the beginning and you you sort of start with uh, I don't know whether it's a soloist or just a choir unaccompanied singing Come Thou Redeemer of the Earth, processing along, and the candles are gradually lit, and you have a series of scripture readings and hymns and choral things, and you end you end the service with the en- entire congregation with the cathedral bathed in candlelight, singing. Um, one of the great Advent hymns that that's just completely escaped. A come, a
1: come Emmanuel, I hope.
0: No, well, we've sung that during, we've sung okay. that during, Lo He Comes with Clouds Descending.
1: Lo He Comes. Mm. Yeah, and absolutely. it's just,
0: it is routinely, the cathedral is full, 2,000 people each evening yeah. for three, and of, of all different kinds of backgrounds. And it is a profoundly beautiful marrying of visual, uh, musical, and then the words of scripture. It's brilliant. Mm. Yeah, and I, th- I
1: think our lack of the aesthetic is a real turnoff for lots and lots of people. Yeah, and the fact that lots of people are searching and that it just hasn't occurred to them that some form of you know reformed modern evangelicalism is what they're looking for mm. is because it's like yeah, but it's it's so dry, it's so artless, it's so it's so against my human experience of going to a football match and and just opening my lungs and and singing and um, all these sorts of things so there's so, so much sensory deprivation just because we're slightly wondered worried that lighting a candle might 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 give off the stench of popery
0: mm. and the stench of romishness about it well i mean it's a papery candle
1: well there you go yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> but i mean so it's also just really unbiblical isn't it Mm. So you think about all the great all the great moments in salvation history are accompanied by song. Mm. The Exodus climaxes um, in Exodus 15 in a song of praise. Whether Hannah is actually, you know, Hannah's song is actually a song, it's it's poetic. Um, every major section of the book of Isaiah ends with God's people singing. Sorrow and sighing flee away, and they're, you know, they're they're overtaken by joy and the ransomed of mm. the Lord return, singing joyfully. Just think about Luke 1 and 2. It's mm. full of song. Uh, Zechariah's song, the angel's song, Mary's song, um, oh, Simeon's can't song. Can't shut them
1: up. Sounds like a musical, doesn't uh, it? And
0: then you get to Revelation, and it's like the noisiest book in the Bible. And one of the mm. most striking moments in the book of Revelation is chapter 8, verse 1 or 2. Like, the, the the seal is broken, and there's silence in heaven for half an hour. And like that is a deeply significant thing, that it, that in the middle of this noisy book full of song and music yeah silence yeah so mm-hmm. i just th- i just think and, and the book of psalms is is full of yeah. music song um aesthetic and emotional range that if we deprive ourselves of that we're just being deeply unbiblical yeah, yeah. psalm 49 I, I take it
1: you're not a fan of the regulative principle therefore uh in the sense of no doesn't say instruments in the new testament so we're not having instruments in our psalm singing it's like <laughs>
0: it's a- it says sing the psalms, so you sing the psalms with instruments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. like, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a, I think it's an unpersuasive argument otherwise. But yeah. yeah.
2: I never want to hear that music again.
1: We should talk a little bit about um, Rayform Williams. You've recently dived into a book. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and why you wanted to to read uh, about this great. British composer
0: yeah I mean I so I did a music degree yonks ago and uh, my a-level project was on a so the generation after Vaughan Williams Michael Tippett who was a composer I was fascinated by I then did my my undergraduate dissertation on the next generation after Tippett Harrison Birtwistle and at the time I just thought of you know Vaughan Williams was this sort of portly, tweedy, jolly, avuncular Edwardian gentleman writing music that was sort of condescendingly known as the Cowpat School, because it's just, it's very pastoral. And, ah. I mean, he he grew up in, I think, in Dorking in Surrey. Right. And so yeah. it's the music of the English, that very, the rolling English. Like, Mahler is the music of the Alps and it's grandeur and majesty. And it's it's just very avuncular. And he he uses folk tunes. And at some point it kind of dawned on me that several of my most moving musical experiences in my teens were Vaughan Williams related. Um, And I just started listening to more and realising...
2: And what were those, by the way? What were the most moving? Do you remember what they were when you were yeah, the Yeah,
0: the first time I ever visited Salisbury Mm. um, was with a youth orchestra and the string section of the youth orchestra played five variants on Dives and Lazarus Mm. um, in Salisbury Cathedral. Um, and you know, sort of dusk in Salisbury Cathedral on a summer's evening, and I was just transported. I hmm. Had a friend who played the tuba, and Vaughan Williams's tuba concerto. I mean, he writes concertos for the tuba. <laughs> and and one, of, I mean, one of the striking things about Vaughan Williams is his his belief in serving others. That he just had a friend who was a tuba player, so he wrote him a tuba concerto. Hmm. Um, and then. Actually, one that's totally, for all I've just said about the Cowpat School of Music, the Fourth Symphony, we played the Fourth Symphony in an orchestra I was in, and I can't remember which one, which is, like, if you're familiar with Shostakovich's symphony, that's the sound world. It is a much more violent, uh, dramatic, tense piece.
1: Mm.
0: And I just, I just started listening to more, and then actually Radio 3 had a, has a, one of the highlights of Radio 3 for me is Composer of the Week, which is on at midday every weekday. They take a different composer for a week. But for the 150th anniversary, they did a month of Vaughan Williams. And I just listened and went, man, the the range and the brilliance of this man's music is extraordinary. So I started reading around and listening to other things. And I became fascinated with him as a musician, but then actually just his kind of social and cultural vision as well. Um, And the way that he put his music at the service of that. I think you, you mentioned, you know, he was an agnostic throughout his life, and yet Christianity is is a, a and and music for the church is right at the heart of a lot of what he's doing. Hmm. Yeah, so I just I just picked up this this biography because yeah. I thought it'd be fun to read. Uh, was it
2: his his father was a was a pastor? Is that right? And his mother yeah. was connected in some way to
0: his father was a vicar, hmm. and actually was. Um, his, his first cure was um, just down the road from me in Bemerton, which is where George Herbert was. Uh-huh. So Bemerton's a t- tiny, tiny little parish and tiny little church. But then Vaughan Williams was born in a, a village in Gloucestershire called Downamney, where his dad was the vicar. His dad died at the age when Vaughan Williams was two. His dad did not die at the age of two for obvious, obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, his mother was descended from um, Darwin and from Josiah Wedgwood, the potter. So there's a kind of cultural, sort of fairly progressive liberalism in the mix as well. And then he grows up with his family in, in Dorking and then goes to Charterhouse. And um, So probably a, a fair whack of Christianity at Charterhouse. But from a young age was an agnostic. Uh, and, and, and yet, you know, one of the, one of the major projects of his early career was the English hymnal, which was a kind of, people in the sort of early 1900s going, you know, hymns ancient and modern's a bit naff. Mm -hmm. The the words are a bit naff, the music's a bit naff, let's do something good. Um, And Vaughan Williams edited that Uh, using a lot of English folk tunes, writing a lot of tunes himself. And just, I think, seeing the church in, it was published in 1906, seeing the church as the heart of English social and community life. Um, and so part of it, I think, is that and part of it is that sense of a, a reaching for the transcendent. Hmm. So so music, music serving communities and serving very ordinary people, but then also music reaching for something beyond itself.
1: I wonder if it's a bit like I've heard somebody describe Terry Pratchett as just a totally hopeless atheist. <laughs> Uh, because you you read any Terry Pratchett Discworld book, and it is full of hope and joy and strangeness and comedy, and the good guys always win yeah. by hook or by crook. And so, if this guy's trying to tell us that life is meaningless, well, I'm afraid he's done a truly terrible job, and I don't actually think he believes it. Now, if somebody can write The Lark Ascending, yeah, and they tell me that they don't believe in God. I don't think I believe you. <laughs> I just think uh, it is—it is, you know, probably th- that's probably one of the greatest hits. And you, if you listen to Classic FM for any length of time, um, you probably won't go for more than a couple of hours <laughs> without <laughs> without hearing it. Yes. Um, it's probably played at least at least six times a week. Uh, I would have thought.
0: Yeah. Guess what? Your most popular your most popular work is about the ascension. You just don't realise it.
1: Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis would be another one yeah. uh, that people might know, although uh, they might not know. That, I think that, that was in my... When we
2: did our podcast about favourite bits of music, I think that was one mm. of my choices. Sorry, it's a bit yeah. middle class of me, isn't it? But I really nice. like it. Why I did, I did you choose that, that, Barry? Why Just did you choose us. it? Yeah. Um, because, like Matthew, I remember hearing it in my teenage years and was so profoundly moved by it. Um, and there's a mm. bit towards the end where... It's building to a crescendo, and I've never heard this effect before in music. But there's a sort of a, I don't, I, I can't, I can't even describe it because I'm not a trained musician. But they do something with the, there's like a single violin, and it's like he sort of drags his bow across the top, and it kind of catches just before mm. it releases, and it feels like it, it's the most brilliant evocation of being choked up emotionally, which I've mm. ever heard. Mm. And feeling that way myself as I was listening to it, I just thought this is genius. There's something. There's something profoundly transcendent in this music that I'd not heard before. So I think that was the first time I could say I really fell in love with what would be called classical music. There was one other piece, which we'll probably talk about later, James, when you talk about favourite concerts. But yeah, I just fell in love with that extra, for the whole 15 minutes of it. But that bit in particular is just glorious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My favourite Vaughan Williams hymn is Come Down, O Love Divine. Hmm. The tune, the name of the tune is Down Amney, which is named for the parish where his father was the vicar. And it's just a stunning. And I don't, again, you're like, what what are you doing writing that tune that matches so perfectly with words calling on the Holy Spirit to come down and renew your heart? And yet it's very obvious from his life that in important ways, he really didn't live a Christian life. so it's 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 it's, faci- it's one of those fascinating and puzzling things that that here is a man seeking and expressing something more than he himself. Yes, consciously believes.
2: I always felt exactly the same way. I loved Philip Larkin as a as a young mm. English literature student, and I could never quite. My friend, who was a died in the bull atheist, always used to say, Well, there you go. You see, atheists are capable of creating things of great beauty. And I said, Yes. And they're, they're writing, you know, better than they know. Yeah. There is something about Larkin where he's constantly basically, you know, spitting on God, really. Hmm. But his, his, his verse is so, so beautiful and does something to us as we're reading it that you think, well, he's, his apologetic for God is a lot better than a lot of explicitly Christian poets, I would say. Yeah. It's just that it's unintentional.
1: Yeah, the spitting is always a telltale sign, isn't it? Because they're furious about the God that they don't believe in. It's like, you're quite agitated about a concept that you think is profoundly non-existent. Uh, so there's always a bit more going on there, I think, at least. Mm. Yeah. Drop of the So the other thing to mention, and I think both, I think all three of us being men of a certain age <laughs> are encouraged by the fact uh, that uh, when, you, when you emailed us about this, it's interesting that he was a bit of a late developer. And here I am, a professional writer at the age of 47, rather hoping that my magnum opus is ahead of me rather than behind me and that my career so far is not, uh, is, is not the high point, but there are, there are greater peaks to come. Um, I thought that was really interesting because it is quite, unfortunately, unusual, isn't it? Or is it? Do we just kind of imagine that it's like people thinking that all comedians are naturally manic depressives off stage? And it's like, well, there are some <laughs> high-profile versions. Yeah, you know, some one or two were, but um, but yeah, why why is that surprising to us? Do you
0: think it is fascinating to me because? I, and maybe it is just something that I have in my own mind, but I have I have the picture of the kind of child genius, mm. you know, whether it's Picasso, or Mozart, or you know, Schubert's late works. I mean, he's dead by the time he's thirty-one or thirty-two.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Mozart's dead at thirty-six. Vaughan Williams hasn't even got going by that stage, really. Um, I, you know, so he he pursued music at the Royal College of Music and at Trinity College, Cambridge. But his family are this, I mean, incredibly impressive family, the Wedgwoods, the Darwins. And there is some sort of aunt who says, oh, you know, Rafe is still working away on his music, even though he's so terrible at it. Hmm. And so, you know, he was written off by his own family. He is writing stuff in his 20s and 30s, but I don't think he does anything. The English hymnal is published when he's 34. He edits that. Toward the Unknown Region is probably the first thing you would think of as a relatively significant work. He's 35. Uh, the, The Talis Fantasia, which we've talked about, 38. The Lark Ascending, he's 49. By that stage, he's written two symphonies, various other things. Actually, most of his greatest works are written after the age of 50. Hooray! <laughs> when, when his Fifth Symphony is performed, I made a note of this somewhere. I made, uh, his Fifth Symphony was performed when? When he was 71, hmm. okay, 1943. He's 71, um, and one of the critics says, this is like the work of a distinguished poet who has nothing very new to say, but says it in exquisitely flowing language. So that's his fifth no. symphony when he was 71. His sixth symphony, he was 76. That's probably the masterpiece among the symphonic works. And then he writes three more in his 80s. So, you know, he, he just has this huge, he's writing all the time. I mean, one of the things, I, I read this book and I just kind of, I felt exhausted because he <laughs> he was doing so many different things yeah and somehow managing. Now, his life was disrupted by the First World War. That was a deep trauma. Um, and he sort of fell silent for a little while after that. I mean, obviously during, he was on the front, he was a, a stretcher bearer, an ambulance driver. Mm-hmm. So goodness knows what he saw. Oh, he actually he lied me. about his age. He was 42 in 1914 and he lied about his age, saying he was younger so that he could actually get out and, mm-hmm. and serve. Um, I, I can't quite remember when it was, but like he had... He studied at the Royal College of Music with two different eminent English teachers. He then went to Germany and studied with Max Bruch, And then by the time he's in his like th- mid-30s, he decides, I'm still not really the composer I should be. And so he went to Paris to study with Maurice Ravel, who was two years younger than him. Hmm. Huh. And that's kind of a turning point when he discovers his own voice. Hmm. But I'm just fascinated by how long it takes him to get and just how many... How much he'd written as well. It's not that he'd done nothing, and then suddenly at the age of forty-five he's writing masterpieces. Mm. But it is slow work to get to, and then you know God gave him a long, long and healthy life.
2: And sidebar: Ravel was—he was quite an edge lord, wasn't he? To use the current um, sort of parlance, he's quite an edgy, more mm. progressive yeah. type of composer. So again, that speaks to something we don't usually think of when we think of Vaughan Williams.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And Ravel says, actually, you're the only you're the only student I've ever had who doesn't try to imitate me. But Ravel enables Vaughan Williams to break with that sort of Germanic tradition of writing and to write in his own voice. Yeah. But but which
1: yeah, yeah, which makes it sound like and, and again, we have so many skewed views of the creative process and what it is to be an artist and that kind of thing. And I wonder. So speaking about his voice, it makes it sound like he he eventually found his genius where he was able to finally express himself because he had things to say was an actual fact. I, d- I don't know what he did have to say um, because he was writing expressive music and was creating longing and yearning in people that, that even he didn't truly understand. Um, but I was interested to see, and um, as we sort of already hinted at, his interest in serving others mm. and that maybe in realising that he could and should serve others with music, that was his voice. That was the way in which, because maybe others were trying to make a name for themselves with a new sound and a new, mm. um, and when it comes to, you know, writing books or plays or comedy or, or, or visual art, I'm thinking of like particularly Brit art and the, the you know, the new, the, it's, a lot of it was designed to shock and subvert. Whereas actually he's not really doing that, is he?
0: No, not at all. And there are... So the, the Fourth Symphony is the one that feels shocking and subversive. Mm-hmm. And, and he writes it and then says, I don't know whether I like it, but it's what I meant. <laughs> OK. Um, yeah. But there is that sense of he's writing these extraordinary... I mean, I think his his symphonic output uh, stands comfortably next to Sibelius and Shostakovich as the kind of three great symphonists of the sort of mm-hmm. post post Marla period so 20th century um and yet he's writing a hymn book Mm -hmm. he's writing service settings not just for the cathedrals but for local parish church simply enough for a parish church choir to sing during the second world war he wrote a set of household pieces Mm -hmm. that he doesn't specify what instruments you play them on so that you can play them with whatever instruments you have in the house to provide just a bit of solace during the war. He lives in Dorking, um, he, and they move back to Dorking when he's in his 50s, I think. And so this mm. will then overlap with the, the war and sets up a music festival there. And one of the things he wants to do is to give something back to the community that nurtured him as a child. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And so, so there is that kind of, there's a, I think there's a deep humility
2: yeah. There's a great quote, isn't there, where he says, Many young composers make the mistake of imagining they can be universal without at first having been local. <laughs> I thought that was very revealing.
1: Wow,
0: that's interesting. That, that is very interesting. And Kelly
1: have words. I spoke to, before he died, Barry Cryer, who was, who was a great comedian, great writer, wonderful, uh, joyful man. And, um, I spoke to him and, and as the conversation unfolded, what was clear was he just loved jokes. Mm. And he talks about how he was helped by someone, I mean it might have been Max Miller or someone like that, some real old-time kind of comedy guy, very high profile, very much respected. And it was clear that 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 Barry was helped along the way by this guy who could have easily just batted him down as a competition, but actually he just loved jokes as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I wonder if there's a sense in which Vaughan Williams just—he just loved music, mm. and he wanted everyone to share in it. He, you know, he wanted everyone to be able to participate in it. Hence, writing music yeah. for the home. Without, you know, there was a there was an other person centeredness about it, which again maybe takes us back to the trinitarian nature of uh, music and, and what it actually is. Is there is an other person centeredness about it, which I think is possibly one of those great secrets and the same with writing the same with all kind of other art forms It's it's not about you uh maybe
0: yeah i've just i'm in the middle of reading the roots of romanticism by isaiah berlin which is just a fascinating book and he makes the point at, at some point in that um you know mu- music pre pre 19th century say music has a particular social function that that more often than not a musician is either uh, a court servant, uh, or is working for a church, and so you're producing liturgical music, or you're producing music for the court, and even when you're producing sort of piano concertos or symphonies, or your Mozart, you're doing—you're not really doing it. You're, you're doing it um, because someone wants you to. You get to Beethoven, and all of a sudden, you have the lone genius who begins his career as the virtuoso pianist, writing music so he can show what a great pianist he is and ends his career kind of isolated and deaf and living in a garret and having completely failed at life, but writing this extraordinary music um, which displays his genius. And really, the shadow. Isaiah Berlin says, the shadow of Beethoven falls right across the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so we have this idea of the artist as the great hero and mm-hmm. um, who is expressing themselves in a unique and distinct way really for their glory more than anything else. I mean, Wagner would be a sort of classic example list as well. And, um, uh, you know, uh, James Joyce in his fiction. Uh, and it's a, it is a totally different mind. And I think Vaughan Williams is a much more, in that sense, pre-romantic mindset mm. of this, I am mm. producing cultural artefacts to serve other people. Mm. We, my, my, What were we listening to? My wife and I were listening to something a little while ago, and I just went... Do you know that is that is the most extraordinarily skillful piece of music that was? It might have been a Haydn symphony or something. Just unbelievably skillful. I thought you were going to and
2: say yet, Harry Styles, but okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was nearly what I was going to say. Yeah. And yet, just written for no no other purpose than to briefly give some other people some pleasure. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think at the age of. 20 i would have thought that was a terribly trivial and superficial thing (laughs) and at the age of 47 i just think it's lovely
1: yeah Yeah, absolutely i mean uh, comedians obviously love to impress other comedians but actually the ones that do well but also do a good job are those who realize that most people watching their show are not comedians and they just like laughing Mm. and they'd like a night out where they can just laugh and laugh and laugh and it's something joyful and there's always a place for the the Stuart Lee who can dance around with the form and that kind of stuff and he he knows he's doing it and people going to watch it know he knows he's doing it all that kind of stuff but um I think that element of artist as servant is a really interesting thing that feels like we should we should talk more about and we may do over on the Patreon extended Cooper and Carry plus version of this where we're gonna uh, going to say which of our the, the the music gig that we most remember for for whatever reason. So we'll we'll jump onto that. But in the meantime, we're going to say thanks so much, uh, Matthew, uh, for that book. That book was written by who? Eric Saylor. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank thanks so much for having me. I've I've loved it and if folks would like to hear barry and i talk more about um, our basically desert island discs then if you join us on patreon you can go back and hear those episodes that we recorded and have a listen to that but anyway stay tuned uh join us on patreon and you can hear us talk a little bit more about this but until then uh thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next time cheerio